Support for today's episode of Script Apart comes from We Screenplay. If you just completed a draft of a script and are wondering what next, well, you need to check out We Screenplay. We Screenplay not only offers amazing free resources, like virtual events where your questions are answered by Hollywood's leading professionals, with incredible 72-hour turnaround, format-specific feedback tailored to your specific goals, and a price that no one else can come close to, We Screenplay coverage is used by thousands of writers in every phase of their careers, from emerging writers still finding their voice all the way to Oscar winners. So if your script is all ready to go, check out one of We Screenplay's labs, where dozens of writers have been repped, optioned, and staffed as a direct result of the real-life industry meetings and hands-on workshops offered by We Screenplay. Don't stay stuck. We Screenplay want to help. Check out We Screenplay by visiting wescreenplay.com or clicking the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from our friends at Screencraft. Breaking into Hollywood as an aspiring writer can be a confusing, convoluted thing. Fortunately, Screencraft is here to help writers with both the craft of writing and the business of Hollywood. Screencraft has everything for your writing journey, from video lectures starring your favorite writers to hands-on career coaching with their excellent writer development team. These guys offer the best screenwriting competitions designed to help your talent shine, featuring judges that really know their genre, from top literary reps to Oscar-winning screenwriters. Hundreds of past winners and finalists have started their careers with the direct support of Screencraft, Winners have been staffed on shows at Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV+, the list goes on. They've also sold scripts and been hired to write films for the likes of Universal, Lionsgate, Blumhouse and Hulu. So if you're an aspiring writer, what are you waiting for? Don't wait to check out Screencraft today. Visit screencraft.org or click the link in today's show notes. Okay, hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies and TV shows. My name's Al Horner, and on today's episode, an interview at the end of a show called A Murder at the End of the World. That's right, Britt Marling and Zalbert Munglage are here, and we're going to be breaking down every detail of their phenomenal new TV techno thriller, which reached its breathtaking conclusion last night. As we've come to expect from the creators of the head-spinning Netflix drama, The OA, whose cancellation I might not ever quite recover from, by the way, A Murder at the End of the World was a triumph of both ideas and emotion. Few filmmakers today, in my opinion, manage both simultaneously as elegantly as Britain Zal, whose latest show offered intellectual meditations on artificial intelligence, online misogyny, the desensitization in our culture around violence towards women, extreme wealth, climate crisis, the deification of tech company CEOs, and much, much more. The fact that A Murder at the End of the World can so smartly probe all of those topics without toppling in on itself like a house of cards in an Icelandic snowstorm is an incredible feat in itself. The fact that all those big ideas never overshadow the emotion of the show, the journey that we go on with Emma Corrin's courageous hacker Darby Hart, is even more impressive. Darby's story, zigzagging across three different periods of her life, is the heartbeat of this tale about a group of high achievers and industry leaders invited to a mysterious retreat among the frozen fjords of Iceland. The aim of this gathering is to solve the challenges facing humanity, according to its tech billionaire host, Andy Ronson. 
One tiny snag emerges in his plan though, as one by one guests begin to get bumped off in terrifying technological ways. It's up to Darby, of course, to uncover the killer. In the conversation you're about to hear, Brit and Zul discuss the philosophies behind the show. We talk about the world war origins of the whodunit genre, the most ethical ways to approach violence against women on screen without perpetuating that violence in the real world, and of course, every revelation from last night's thrilling finale. This, if you hadn't guessed already, is a spoiler-filled conversation, so if you're not yet up to speed with a murder at the end of the world, you are probably going to want to hit pause now, then come back when you're all caught up. This is an amazing series with a thrilling, thrilling conclusion, and I don't want to ruin the surprise for you. A huge thanks to Brit and Zool for being fantastic guests, and a massive thank you, as ever, to our Patreon community, without whom this show would not be possible. If you like what we do on Script Apart and want to see the show continue to grow, you can support us on Patreon for the price of a single monthly cup of coffee. In return, you'll get ad-free episodes, early access to episodes, bonus chats between me and producer Cam, and all sorts of other fun perks. Head to patreon.com forward slash scriptapart if you'd like to get involved there. We really do appreciate your support. Okay, with that all out the way, let's dive in, shall we? This is Britt Marling and Zulbert Munglidge on the first draft secrets of a murder at the end of the world. Thanks everyone for tuning in. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. So guys, in an attempt to unlock my inner Derby heart, I tried coffee and Coca-Cola this morning. Honestly, it wasn't as bad as I was maybe anticipating. Like, I don't know. Have you tried it? It's so funny you're bringing that up because we felt like we'd really come up with an impossible concoction <laughs> and like a memorable one that like Darby is so focused on her cases that she doesn't need just one shot of caffeine. She needs two and mix together. And we thought it was sounded terrible, tasted terrible. But then while we were in the edit, Coca-Cola actually released a Coke and coffee drink within a single <laughs> bottle. So our editorial assistant called us down to the kitchen and opened the fridge and it was just lined with all the real Coca-Cola <laughs> coffee and Coke. So we poured little, you know, espresso glasses of it for everybody and all toasted Darby and drank it. And I agree with you. It was not that bad. Yeah, it, it was kind of like an ultra caffeinated Coke float that, that makes you feel briefly <laughs> like you're levitating before a terrible jittery crash. I mean, yeah. I'm surprised FX didn't put like a parental advisory warning on the top of the show saying, do not try this at home. You will enter some mad caffeine vortex and uh, crash hard half an hour later. I have to tell you, though, that ca that caffeine vortex was very useful in the edit because we spent some <laughs> long nights in the edit. And I sort of started to feel like we were Darby Hart in the end, you know, caf double caffeinating and like working long nights to, to pull it off. Oh, I can imagine. Well, Coffee chat aside, guys, God, I absolutely loved every waking second of A Murder at the End of the World. Massive congratulations on the show, which uh, will have finished airing by the time this episode comes out, so we can get into it in spoilerific detail. First and foremost, what is the emotion for you both right now, kind of seeing this show out in the world, watching people engage with it week in, week out? It must be a wonderful feeling. Well, I have to say that this week, uh, chapter five came like, the week that we're doing this recording. Chapter five came out, and um, that's uh, an episode Britt wrote and directed. 
and it's just my favorite episode. It's it, chapters five, six, and seven are my favorites, but five is takes the cake. And I've watched it three. T- Usually we don't watch our work once it comes out, but I've watched it three times with three different groups of people. And it's just such a great episode. And I was watching it last night uh, on this great big TV at someone's house. And I was like, there is not a wasted shot in this hour and 15 minute episode, you know, and they're so beautifully like Brit's framing is so amazing. And the shots are all telling you something. And then uh, that performances, Emma's performance, Brit's performance, Clive is so amazing. And, you know, he's an actor that we admired for so long. So to see him, you know, in this story, it's a chill and Harris, it's just amazing. And Elise Braga. So the whole crew and Joan Chen and Raul Esparza. So it, it, it's an embarrassment of riches. I feel grateful to just be involved. Is there an element of trepidation as well when you've written a whodunit, wondering if uh, the audience is going to, you know, in a time of like Reddit boards and, and speculation across social media, is there an element of wondering whether people are going to guess the ending or is that not really a concern for you guys? I mean, I think for sure that the audience is really impressive these days. I mean, I think the audience has a kind of amateur sleuth ability <laughs> that in some ways inspired Darby Hart. Um, you know, re- the Redditors, you know, that have gathered around the OA are an impressive group of people and they can solve almost anything. So, um, so yeah, I think we did think about that. We have thought about that a little, but it's also been fun to just see week to week, you know, when we released the OA, it all came out at once. And so it's been kind of exciting to parcel it out week by week, chapter by chapter, and to see the theories build and to see people argue with each other and to see how who done it changes in people's minds chapter to chapter. Um, so yeah, it's re- it'll be really exciting to get to the very end and, and see how it sits with people, because I think this is a story we really decided to tell once we had come up with the ending. It just felt like we had to tell it, like it was a burning hot coal and we were just like, you know, wanted to go there. And so, <laughs> yeah, it'll be exciting to be able to enter that conversation with with the audience finally. Years ago, years ago, we made a movie called Sound of My Voice. And I guess Damon Lindelof saw it and invited me to his office and we had a chat. And he told me that he learned from Lost that, you know, like when they were first writing Lost, message boards were just starting you know it's also the history of amateur sleuthdom or fandom online and that they would often change things um because people were guessing it and then he was like you know what you learn is that there's nothing wrong with people guessing things and i thought that that was the best advice it's it's great if people get it like they're not upset they don't feel gypped they it, it means that the story is real because yeah. 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 And a lot of whodunits, a lot of whodunits these days in an, in an attempt to avoid that, make it so it's like virtually impossible for anyone to figure it out. But that's no fun, you know? Yeah. And I also think that like, well, for me, I can only speak personally, but as as the series hurtled towards a conclusion, I was watching, yes, intrigued by the mystery and yes, wanting to know who committed the murders and so on. But um, I think I was mostly there for Darby's character journey, which... um we can talk about because that feels like a bit of an inversion of the genre, but um, we should talk first about like the seeds of the show. Like I'm no Darby in terms of like online detective work, but I did come across one clue on the internet towards where your heads might have been as you constructed this show. So 
Britt, in 2020, you wrote an incredible essay called I Don't Want to Be the Strong Female Lead that is so fascinating to go back to after watching this show. Like so many components of A Murder at the End of the World feel like executions of the ideas in that article. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that essay and, and how Darby Hart is kind of the manifestation of its message? Because as a character, Darby, just as you were calling for in that New York Times piece, she feels like an important course correct, not just to the whodunit genre, but to kind of pop culture at large, just in how like flinty and smart and empowered she is as this kind of agent of justice in the aftermath of violence, rather than another female character who violence is enacted upon. Wow. That was so thoughtfully put. <laughs> uh, I hope that I can even add something to it that. It was the coffee and coke um, that did it. It was a coffee and coke combo. Yeah. <laughs> Nailed it. Um, I guess, you know, I think I wrote that op-ed for the New York Times because I was feeling this kind of like roiling in my stomach a little bit, which is that it's hard. It was hard to put your finger on what feels like it was happening in storytelling at that moment, which was there was this understanding that the, the history of women in storytelling had kind of been an oppressed history and that women were often relegated to playing, you know, side characters that were very underdeveloped, you know, the wife, the girlfriend. Um, and it, it felt like we we knew we wanted leading female protagonists, but then it felt like the immediate way to contend with that or to write those women was to to define their strength in what had been, you could say, I guess, very masculine ways. So it was just like this influx of stories with like female assassins, you know, as if as if the way to talk about female strength is just like, well, give her the gun, let her kill everybody in the room. And that is a kind of strength, of course, but it it I, it saddened me because it felt like it was a strength that was defining it through power and through domination and through the sort of perpetuation of these themes that we all know are not very good for us or very good for the world, you know? And so it felt like, God, is there not some way as, as women start to write and tell stories that we can't birth characters that change our values for what we even think strength is, you know, how about listening being an incredible strength, you know? And I think Darby, you know, gives space for that. I think she listens as much as she talks um, or empathy or feeling or these qualities that I guess have been considered quote unquote softer um, and therefore not as easy to portray, not as easy to make dramatic or cinematic and, and also then not as valued in the world. And so writing Darby certainly was a huge challenge to try to figure out how to put that on screen make it compelling and and then also make it genuinely feel like a way to solve a case. And, and, and in so doing, I think propose that if we want to solve the mysteries that are going on in the world right now, or some of the big things we're up against the climate crisis, the unravel of democracy, these huge hyper objects that part of what we're missing is the sort of softer side of ourselves, the, the listening, the empathy, the, the deep feeling, the things that have been qualities that we've sort of pushed aside in favor of our more like linear, potentially ruthless qualities, which succeed so well in late capitalism, you know? So 
Yeah, it was a bit, it was certainly was a project and it was an idea that Zoll and I talked about a lot when we were starting to form this character in this world. And then it was so much harder in the execution than we ever thought. I mean, this is the first time Zoll and I have written drafts and torn the drafts apart and started from scratch two or three times on some of the chapters because it was just so hard to try to write in a space where we didn't have that much to borrow from, from the past or where, as we were, we were sort of doing, as you said, so much of a genre um, inversion or, or turning the genre inside out. And it, it turned out to be a lot harder than we thought. <laughs> Can you remember some of the, the missteps, some of the, some of the drafts that you had to tear up because the idea you were kind of exploring, it, it wasn't right. You weren't executing on the idea of that essay. Well, one of the things we wanted to do is we wanted to not give her a badge. Um, you know, we noticed that a lot of one hour sort of dramas uh, on streaming or on television with female leads, they were just as Brit saying, um, you know, substituting a traditionally male cop with a female cop or a male king with a female queen or a male CIA agent with a female CIA agent. And there was very few one hour dramas where with women in the lead where she wasn't um, in sort of a procedural role or playing a traditionally male role. And so we specifically didn't want to give Darby a badge and in doing so, and we wanted her to be young. And so that those two constraints made it so we had to constantly um, sell her to the audience to make the show at all credible. And this is what Britt was saying about the, you know, the audacity of on our part to think that we can invert a genre. I mean, the whole beauty of genres is they don't really, they change incrementally. So the idea of like whole change is, um, you know, it it, it sent us down a lot of rabbit holes. Like one of the things we had to do is chapter two, in order for it to work, that she can solve it, you have to show how she became a detective as a child, you know, how she came onto her dad's crime scene. Well, that, immediately like begins a third story basically and so you're not keeping up with the speed that people are normally used to at the beginning of a second chapter but there was also so much pleasure in that those scenes with darby and her dad are some of my favorite in the show and emma did such a great job portraying that you know and it, and it helps you what's cool about long format is by the time you get to chapter six and seven you have had that child, those childhood memories with Darby. You saw her ride her bike by herself from the morgue to her empty house. You saw her climb the stairs in the dark and sit at her computer, which was the only hearth in her sort of motherless life. And those things are kind of essential for how she solves the case, in my opinion. Well, just to linger on the essay for, for just a moment longer, uh, there's a line in that piece that I think is so powerful. Our narratives tell us that women are objects and objects are disposable so we are always objectified and often disposed of. And my interpretation of that line, Brit, um, is that it kind of speaks to how there's a cycle that we're stuck in as a culture in which violence against women exists. So our pop culture reflects that. But in turn, that then dooms us to, to more violence against women in real life because it's so normalized. We're unable to imagine a landscape without violence against women because our media is so saturated by the imagery of female bodies, broken, bruised, murdered even. 
how did you begin to build that realization out into some of the rules of, of what you were and weren't going to do with this show? I, I think it's so cool that you're describing that cycle because I think it's really true. We have this idea that like that that it's somehow not actually connected, that like, oh, the violence on screen just reflects what's in the real world, but it isn't a part of creating it. But of course, if you're a young person and you grow up and every procedural you've ever seen or every mystery you've ever seen begins with this dark, erotically charged women, um, erotically charged dead women on the ground, and that that is the sort of engine, the, the, the nuclear reactor that powers the whole story, like those images then become a part of you, you know, and, and what you desire or can desire or can find acceptable in the world. So I think for us, we, it was a real challenge to figure out, well, how can you talk about violence against women without perpetuating the image system that continues it? And, and one of the things we came up with, I think that's an ongoing task. I don't think we by any means solved it, but I think we were doing our best attempt. And, and one of the things that we found was thinking about showing bodies as bones, you know, literally taking the flesh away. So you can't make it an erotically dark, darkly charged image, but you are also contending with the loss of life. Um, I think other things we tried to do is we tried to really stay rooted in Darby's POV. You know, if you think about the word private eye, it's literally private eye. It's like the, wor the world according to this perspective. When you watch Chinatown with Giddies, you never leave Giddies POV. You know, and so we tried to do the same thing, which was challenging to write, challenging for Emma to perform because they're in literally every scene. But I think by doing that, we when we approach death or when we approach a crime scene, we're really in the world according to Darby. And so she... Darby takes us down to the ground with the victim and the way she sees the victim is different. What she sees is different. Um, her interest in the victim's life, the vic finding the victim's name, like a sense of restoring that name and therefore her story to the victim is the thing that she's prizing over sort of becoming obsessed with the serial killer's mind, you know, and his dark creativity and his cleverness at eluding authorities, you know, that, that isn't as foregrounded, I think for her or for us in telling the story, I think we're trying to sit more with the victim. And I think part of that is like, you know, obviously spoiler when, when Bill dies in chapter one, so much of the story is about then Bill, you know, it's not like we kill Bill and then, you know, you don't know anything about Bill. It's like you spend the rest of the time giving real estate, narrative real estate and space to that life that was lost um, as a way of saying like, well, when we take lives, you know, that matters, you know, like who the life was behind the body matters. Darby as a character kind of offers a great blueprint for how we as a society should perhaps be thinking about violence towards women, right? Like uh, growing up with a dad for a coroner, she's been exposed to dead female bodies her entire life. And she's had every reason to have become numb to that violence because of it. But instead of being desensitized, every single female body, every single dead female body that she encounters just seems to motivate her more in stopping that violence like it, it, it's what's led her to hacking and what's led her to digital detective work. That doesn't feel like an accident. Can you tell me about this component to her character and, and how you threaded it in? 
Yeah, I was just thinking about how I think I think Zal portrayed this really beautifully in chapter two, both the the sense of being a little girl in the car and her father getting out and going to the crime scene and feeling called and that feeling like an almost metaphysical thing, like a haunt to see what it is that her dad does and to know that something's out there calling her. And then to watch that enter her young adult years and to have her father be like, well, here's this, you know, box of bones, like go file it away. And she's filing it away in the, you know, the morgue back lot. And it's just like box after box after box of Jane Doe. And she's supposed to just put it away. She's supposed to forget like her, her dad can forget, you know, and she, she can't, it's like, and I think it's all filmed that so beautifully because she walks away from the box and then she stops and you're with her face as she's trying to let go, but she she can't let go. And so she turns back around and gets the box and gets the evidence and makes it her personal mission to, to solve it and to solve it with a group of other outcasts online. Um, and there's something very powerful about that sense of, of haunt, you know, as you're saying, not letting yourself be desensitized to the overwhelm of violence, but to insist on staying sensitive and open. Um, even though we're, you know, at, at this point in time, it's a very, it's a very dark world. It's hard sometimes to take it all in and to remain sensitive and vulnerable and to also see yourself as powerful in the face of that overwhelm, to not feel impotent or that, that you can't do anything, but to feel actually like, well, no, I can do something. Like I can get behind, behind my computer and connect with these other people. And together as a sort of hive mind, we might be capable of solving something that the authorities haven't been able to or aren't interested in solving. Recently, Britt and I were at a conference in San Francisco and um, it was, we were talking about the show for Wired with Wired Magazine. And I took a driverless car to the, um, to the event. I've never been inside a driverless car before. And it's really a radical thing because you're watching the wheel turn and, you know, stop for pedestrians. And, you know, you, you then get out of the car and you're, this sort of wired tech conference. And I realized in that moment when I got on stage there that the most radical thing I've seen in my lifetime is not actually a piece of technology. It's not actually the internet or a driverless car or AI. The most radical thing is women telling stories for the screen, not only writing them, but also directing them. And that that is going to change the world way more than any of these things. And so I, I, I thought that that was connected to your comment about Brit's essay and the movies that we've seen come out in the last few years, uh, you know, Anatomy of a Fall. I don't know if you've seen that yet, but that. Yeah, so good. Yeah, it is so good because I've never seen that. I know that woman, but I've never seen her on screen before. So she was, she had eluded me in theaters or at on home video or whatever but I had known her in real life. And so you realize that this amazing group of people had been shut out of being put on the big screen. And the moment someone puts that woman on the big screen and makes you fall in love with her and makes you understand her, you can never go about your life the same way. And that is the single most radical act possible. And we're just in its infancy. Well, I'm so glad that you brought up the driverless car because that is a great segue into something else that we need to discuss. There are themes of tech and themes of capitalism that also kind of run at the heart of this tale alongside violence against women. 
This is a whodunit set at the private residence of a tech billionaire. Tech CEOs are, you know, they they occupy such a big uh, space in our cultural landscape right now. You know, they're deified, they're divisive, they're arguably quite corrosive in terms of the impact upon our society. I know there are benefits to the the decision to to kind of involve a tech CEO and to make this a story set in like his private hotel in the middle of the Icelandic wilderness. For a start, it allows the show to be localized to one tinderbox location, which, you know, is pure Agatha Christie. It also allows you to invent these other guests who've been invited and, you know, who are all strangers to Derby and strangers to each other, which uh in turn makes them all kind of a suspect in this story. Thematically, though, can you tell me what was uh, so alluring about making tech a part of this story? What what felt important about that subject matter right now, so much so that you were going to kind of thread it into, into Darby's tale, which, you know, didn't really necessarily from the offset need to incorporate like a tech component? Well, I guess it's funny you hit on definitely the first part of it, which is, you know, Zal had come into one of our writing sessions, um, you know, which I should say we've been making stories together in one way or another <laughs> since I was literally a teenager. I was 19 when we met. So a lot of our storytelling just comes from also like life and sharing ideas about life. And uh, one day we were meeting up about, you know, writing and Zal came into that session and he was like, you know, I was reading about the whodunit as a genre, and it came to popularity for the first time between the First and the Second World War, which is so interesting because it's another time when huge technological leaps are happening and are also happening in terms of death, mass death and mass destruction. Um, and everyone's kind of looking around in that period and being like, who done it? How did we get here? why? Who's to blame? You know, and so this genre comes to popularity. And as you said, the, in the Agatha Christie version, you know, the seat of power at that time was, of course, the British manor home and all the characters that, you know, that fill it, that populate it. Um, and we were talking about that and it felt like, well, of course, the seat of power now is Silicon Valley and and these tech fiefdoms that are forming where, it feels quite complicated that we're we're in a place where, and I think we saw this even with the strikes recently, the the Writers Guild and Actors Guild striking together in Hollywood, that it it kind of feels we've entered the zone in which, you know, governments and corporations and, and there there is no body or entity that has been able to kind of check the growing power of these tech fiefdoms, and so the result is that it it feels like it falls on the people or labor, you know, if we, the laborers, writers, actors, making these things don't stand up and insist on certain guardrails or protections, um, or to be compensated fairly, you know, all these different things, um, then, then no one will. And so I think we were feeling some of those currents, even four years ago, when we were coming up with this idea, there was this feeling that we were giving a lot away to the to the technological world without even fully understanding what we were giving away, how we our data was being mined, how our lives were being mined, even just on social media. I mean, we're all these content creators basically for free, you know, doing the work that magazines and publicists and, you know, culture curators used to do as a paid job. We're just doing it for free on our phones, you know, and <laughs> meanwhile, all our data is being mined and repackaged and sold. And so I think there was this sense we were feeling that like 
something was afoot and everybody was also kind of looking around and similarly asking who done it and that there was something ripe in the center there to try to contend with some of these things we're all feeling, which there are no easy answers to. Yeah, I'm so glad that that did become an element of this story because, well, I found it so cathartic because it is such a, a contemporary concern and I think it is on a lot of people's minds. Um, once you knew this was going to be a show about this this young hacker brought to a tech retreat, I'd love to know how, how it was that you started to amass the other elements. Like, well, first and foremost, it of course hits so much harder, the fact that the murder that Darby must solve is someone so incredibly close to her, Bill. The, the structuring of the first episode is so clever because first you fall in love with Bill, like the, the tender sing-along in the car to No More I Love You, which by the way, amazing song, uh, <laughs> that really endears you to him and to their relationship. You then have a scene in the basement with Bill in which he kind of seemingly puts himself in the way of a bullet for Darby. The chronology of all these events makes you think that perhaps Bill died in that scene and then you reintroduce him at the retreat. And because of that fake out, you never anticipate that he might be murdered there, or, or at least I didn't. You know, as you say this, I, it's just so so funny because I realized like if Bill was the girl character and we had a detective that was a guy and his girlfriend appears seven years later looking beautiful and, you know, they haven't seen each other and they go for this walk and then she dies and he has to solve it. Uh, that would be so normal. Like I didn't realize how normal that model would be until you just said it. And so it's, it, I think there's something so sort of off putting and strange that he dies. Cause the thought that he could die is not something any of us are prepared for. Even when I watch the pilot now, it, it's not something I'm ready for, Britt. I'm just curious what you're going to, how you're going to answer this question. Well, I didn't even realize till you said that out that way. It's the funny thing about doing this kind of work and you're, if you do your job well, hopefully the audience doesn't notice too much how subversive it is what you're doing. So in this weird way, it's, you like cover your tracks a little bit for how hard it is to pull off, <laughs> you know, killing the young man instead of the young woman. And then letting that have a sophisticated charge, you know, that can power a narrative. Like, I mean, one of my favorite long format works of all time is Twin Peaks, you know? And, but I used to sometimes think about Twin Peaks in the sense of like, well, if you took out Laura Palmer and you made it a Larry Palmer and like Larry Palmer's face was just in the sky and you like, would that work? Would any of us have loved Twin Peaks that way? If it had been a Larry Palmer, like I'm not I'm not sure. And so it's it's true what you were both getting at, which is this sense of like, you've got to do a little extra work with Bill. You have to make the audience love Bill and like really see Bill so that when you take Bill away, it matters. And then also that you feel that it is necessary that Darby solve it and that she's also the person to solve it. I mean, one of the things that we talked about when we were first coming up with this story and talking about it with FX is that we didn't want to make a mystery that was cold-blooded, that part of evolving the genre forward for a young female detective is to make it a hot-blooded mystery. And maybe part of that demands actually intimacy or, or a knowingness or connection with the victim so that you can't get that clinical remove from the body, but instead you feel all the things, grief, pain, confusion, 
love lost and you somehow have to navigate all those feelings and you know keep enough of a logical mind in place to to sort of solve solve the who done it um but it's interesting you bring up those rhythms of chapter 1 because i think we worked on them over and over again in the writing and then in the editing because it, it it's hard to it's hard to introduce new rhythms to the audience the audience is very used to the person dying at the tear you know or the inciting incident. So, you know, you'd set up a status quo, Darby arrives on a retreat, you know, and then minute 20, someone dies, you know, and then by the end of the first chapter, Darby's over the body and, you know, you know, she's going to solve it. And then you're off to the races. And by chapter two, she's interviewing all the guests, you know, and we even tried to write that scene in chapter two. And we found that it wasn't credible, you know, Darby knocking on the doors in chapter two and being like, you know, I want to talk to you about this. It felt petulant and and childish and that she didn't have the power. She hadn't earned it from the audience yet because there's no hundred years of storytelling behind a young female detective to prove she has the right to be there. So as I was saying earlier, we had to go back and tell her origin story and we couldn't get the audience on board for watching her interview suspects until chapter five. And only then if she's sitting next to Andy. And so Andy Ronson is giving her the authority to interview the guests and by virtue of his presence, the guests have to answer. And then, you know, it doesn't feel tongue in cheek or like Nancy drew, it feels credible. So when I, it took us a long time to realize that and a lot of rewrites. And I think it was also pretty damning condemnation of our culture and where we're at currently (laughs) that, that we couldn't muster, you know, we couldn't muster a truthful version of, of what is a classic tried and true genre moment for Darby until five hours into the storytelling. It took that amount of time to earn trust, you know, for, for the woman who's supposed to be the victim suddenly becoming the detective. I don't want us to think that like, this is just, Oh, the modern era. And, you know, we're, we're 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 sort of thinking of things from just this feminist lens because it, it's not so simple. It's like, you know, one of the the female characters that really spoke to me when I was, you know, 14 or whatever was was um, uh, was L- Linda Hamilton from Terminator mm-hmm. 2. And I remember seeing that on the big screen. And Cameron says, you know, the way to from, you know, that I wrote a woman was to imagine as a man and then change the gender at the last minute. and. I completely understand that impulse because it is really hard if you're imagining yourself as Darby to imagine that she has agency, because as Britt said, there is no history for that. So that's not some modern problem in 2023 or 2020 when we started this. It's something that's been dogging this kind of visual storytelling for some time. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting. Um, what Britt just mentioned about kind of pushing the genre forward, there is kind of a grand history of murder mystery storytelling in which the protagonist is kind of just a vehicle for the audience to enter these crime scenes. Like they don't need much interiority because traditionally that's not a demand of the genre. A murder at the end of the world though, places huge importance upon that interiority and that character growth, which is why it's so important that Bill is someone close to Darby. Can you talk me through why that was? Why this had to be ultimately Darby's story rather than the story of a murder in the Icelandic wilderness that that Darby is kind of merely an access point for 
for us as an audience like that that feels like an evolution of the genre i would i would argue first that you are right but that what we assume is an interiority i, I heard meryl streep say something when they were talking about the post have you seen this clip of meryl streep talking and and she says you know um everyone knows how to speak man women know it you know gay men know it uh, everyone knows it but only women and maybe some gay men know how to speak women like that's not and it's not a language that's out there and even maybe you know like jack nicholson's the detective in chinatown giddies he seems like there isn't a lot of interiority but we the audience are bringing a lot of that interiority when he sees an attractive wim- woman we know what he feels like it is already it's like a lingua franca like it, it is a given what he feels in any given situation because we've grown up with that language as shorthand. So while it seems like you, like, I don't think you could put a female giddies. Like, I don't think you could remake Chinatown and make him a woman and make the story work. So it's not only that we wanted to give Darby interiority, as Britt said, to make the story hot blooded rather than cold blooded. But we also in order to pull Darby off, we needed to give her interiority because we needed to sort of ourselves as audience members and also other audience members needed to believe that this person was worth following for seven hours. That makes sense. Um, Can you tell me how you then, once you did lock down um, who Darby was and who Bill was going to be in relation to Darby, can you tell me how you decided on the other types of personalities who might also be invited to the retreat? Like, it feels really smartly balanced in that these other people invited to this Icelandic hideaway, they aren't just there to be potential suspects. Like they each seem to offer either a different perspective to Darby or they have something to say that allows the audience to contemplate the themes of the show in a different way. Like how did you map out that supporting cast of characters? It's so interesting you're bringing that up because they changed a lot. (laughs) And I think part part of them changing a lot as we were writing was trying to find that correct balance which is, you know, first and foremost, the guest has to be somebody that either Andy or his wife, Lee, would invite. And um, and so Andy has his interests, you know, and then Lee as is his wife, who's a former hacker and more coming from more punk roots. There are also choices she would make. And and then that what are the sort of rifts that might form between guests coming from different sides, from Andy's world or from or from Lee's world? Um I think also there was the feeling of if Andy's really sort of calling this meeting of the minds and and trying to reach to people outside the tech community, but who may have used elements of technology in their work, who who best to create a group that feels like it would have a lot of differences of opinion and, and perspective. And so thinking of Martin, the filmmaker played by Jermaine Fowler so beautifully, or Pega Ferdoni as the Iranian activist, um, or Javed as, you know, the climatologist, just trying to bring people from really disparate worlds to offer different voices, you know, both in the context of the retreat, but then also, as you pointed out, you know, to give Darby a different perspective on things. Um, I, I think it it worked out really well. And we had a A.V. Coffin, our casting director, worked really hard with us to really find and fulfill those roles Um, because they're not we we tend to write, you know, people that you not it's not necessarily as easy as just like 
finding the person in LA or New York who can play this role. It's often about, you know, really, really reaching out there and finding people that, that haven't been on, on screen as much, um, in the sort of Hollywood sense of, of things. You mentioned that there were some different iterations of, of characters who you were contemplating putting in the supporting cast. Are there any in particular that, that kind of stand out in your memory? Well, there, there, there are some relics in there too, in, in the screenwriting. Like at first the activist was Brazilian and, you know, and then we were like, well, what about Iranian women? They seem like they are natural activists. And mind you, this is before the uprising last year uh, in Iran, where the women did lead the activism. So we were just sort of imagining it. You know, the, the astronaut had originally been based on an Iranian woman who was an astronaut, which was a real character. And so we sort of do si We had the Brazilian play the astronaut and the Iranian play the activist. And that that worked really nicely. So it was those kinds of changes. Uh, and then, you know, the idea of like, why are climatologists always white? Why are white people in charge of the climate? So the idea of like, if someone's doing the, the coral reefs in the Indian Ocean, why can't he be South Asian? So it was those kinds of sort of things we were imagining. And yet we wanted everyone to be sort of based in truth and real and not sort of a fantasy. And one of those supporting characters is, of course, Lee Anderson, who you play, Brit. I'm really curious to know who she was to you and also whether there was anything that she was meant to represent in terms of, I guess, like the kind of masculine dominance of Silicon Valley, because it feels really pointed that she was a talented generational hacker. But when we meet her, you know, she, she's come to occupy a much more traditional gender role, which leads me to just wonder if there was anything that she was meant to represent about either tech culture or online culture and how it kind of positions women. I think part of it to some of what we were talking about earlier is just exploring, you know, I, I we have friends who were hackers in the really early days of, of the internet and they described it as having this incredible freedom. Like it just wasn't formed yet. It could literally be anything. And it was so intoxicating for people and especially young people. You know, this was a time when like punk hackers in their teen, you know, in their teens in the Midwest and their parents' basements could figure out how to hack into and take down internet servers, like from Dayton, Ohio, or from you know, Remnikal Vulture in Romania and, and the FBI and, you know, the powers that be were not up to speed yet, you know? So it was a really a moment when it kind of felt like the tables had really turned and like young punk kids had all this power. And so it was fun to imagine Lee as being part of that move, that movement or that time. And then also, you know, as things sort of calcified a bit and corporate interests enter, enter and all these things that the misogyny that sort of came up in that space and how difficult it was for any woman, you know, in any of those worlds to find purchase and how terrifying it is, the kind of the backlash that is coming through tech against women that allows for an anonymity to assault, you know, that you can dox people and hack people and you know release fake porn of people and that it's hard to trace and that it's everywhere you know your digital footprint your digital reputation can be destroyed overnight and there's no real recourse for that 
Um, so we wanted to explore some of those themes and then also how, you know, someone like Lee, who's really capable, really smart, really powerful person finds herself so, you know, shocked and destroyed. And in the wake of that, that, that seeking the power of a, of a powerful man and his protection, you know, is some, it can be sometimes what happens. Um, and I think, of course, this is obviously a, a real spoiler, um, but, you know, obviously as it gets towards the end, it explores themes of, of domestic violence. And I think we sometimes imagine that that only happens in you know certain kinds of households or to certain kinds of women, but it happens to all kinds of women, even strong, powerful, you know, women with some resources, it also happens to. And so I think it was interesting for us to try to find a way to, to put that on screen. Um, And how did you guys begin to map out what the murders might be? Because many of them are utterly terrifying, which, um, you know, tracks with what what I know of you guys, like the OA had plenty of really terrifying moments and, um, well, Britt, I know that your first memory of storytelling was at a girls camp in the Everglades where you invented ghost stories that were so terrifying that you got caught... (laughs) You got kicked out of camp for traumatizing other girls. <laughs> I love that. Um, in terms of mapping out the the kind of terrifying, inventive, technologically entwined kills in this story, did you begin with a big list of ways that a hacker might manipulate tech to cause death or, or how did it work? Hmm. Um, that's so interesting. I haven't thought, I, haven't, I think part of it was we were trying to find, we wanted to make something that was taut and thrilling but we didn't want to traffic in too much gore, you know, in the sense that like, we didn't want to, we don't want to put those kinds of images on screen. So we were trying to, I think in part find ways that, that we didn't have to lean into that. that um, and then I think the other thing is that we wanted every hack in the story to be real. And so as we started doing those research and and finding certain things um, like for instance, the, the pacemaker hack, that was just so terrifying. Um, <laughs> yeah. And we had talked to some people who had described that hack being um, rumored to be tested on a pig on stage at a like a hackers conference. Um, and that just felt like, oh, you know, there's something that I think we all feel a little bit about the way we're inviting technology in, you know, the way that it it offers so much ease and convenience and uh, speed that we kind of just like open the door and like, you know, come on, come on in, but without thinking too much about the vulnerabilities that it might introduce. And so there was something about that, for instance, the pacemaker hack that we demonstrated the, you know, in the chapter three that felt like a way of getting at some of those feelings Um which is like you solve something through technology, but then you you don't understand, uh, as as Lee and, and Darby both say, that it gives you an, a quote unquote attack surface, which is a, a hacker term for opening up a vulnerability to being attacked. Um, yeah, so I think we were interested in some of those themes. I'm curious what Zal would say, though. I don't. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right about what you're saying. I mean, I think that. I remember when we first started reading about a lot of this stuff in 2019, um, you know, the big thing that everyone always says is they shrug and they're like, well, I'm not doing anything too weird on the Internet, so I don't care if my information's out there. But that always assumes that the rules of engagement are going to stay what they have been. 
and not that they could change in a nanosecond. And I think these last three years and going into four years, as, as we as we're about to enter 2024, like I think you see that the rules can change really easily and that governments, uh, special interest groups, all sorts of people are going to be able to use all of our data, all of our information to sort of get us to do what we want them to do. You know, if people are being vocal about something, they can shut them up um, by threatening to sort of destroy them, as Britt said, digitally. I mean, I think that the digital killing doesn't have to always be an actual murder. It can be the killing of your uh, of your um, reputation. And and that's also a kind of murder. And I think we're going to see that um, happen a lot more. And can happen to anybody. And th that's really terrifying. And I think sometimes a murder mystery is really a metaphor for those kinds of deaths. A and um, yeah. So in conclusion, what we're saying there is technology, all very good and well until you're getting an emergency tracheotomy wearing a big motorcycle helmet. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, I should ask as well, like, why Iceland as a location for this story? Was it the kind of visual opportunities afforded to you by that kind of backdrop? Was it the way that the inclement weather could isolate these characters, kind of ramping up the threat because there's no one that's going to be able to come and save them? Were there kind of perhaps thematic ideas pulling you towards that backdrop? Because it's, of course, like a backdrop of extreme natural beauty in a story about people pushing humanity away from what's natural and into like this new technological dawn with AI. So yeah, talk, talk me through it. I just was, I just thought it was beautiful that so many of the things you enumerated were so many of the things we were feeling. Like, I think, I think part of it was certainly thinking about, you know, especially in these cities, we feel so powerful and so certain of our power. And then you put yourself in certain remote parts of Iceland and you have to completely surrender to the elements. And um, there was something very interesting about the idea of Andy, you know, as this tech billionaire building this sort of boutique hotel out there that in the beginning feels so luxurious and, and special. And you're on this fun bit of, you know, tourism. And then as you realize how remote it is and surrounded by these, you know, razor sharp peaks and frozen landscape and the climate crisis changing the directions that storms approach from how much snow they dump, how long they stay, you know, and these are, these are all true things. We experienced that as we were shooting in Iceland, like nobody, nobody, no matter how much money they have in the world can meet up against those forces and defeat them. And so I think a part of what the show wants to ask is why is anyone even attempting to defeat them? You know, this idea that we need to pit man against nature rather than that humans are of course of nature, you know, like our, our veins are in the same pattern, of the veins of leaves, you know, like we are, of we are ecology, we are of ecology. And the more that we try to divorce ourselves from ecology and, and punish it and subjugate it and extract from it and create wealth from it the more that i think it's pretty obvious at this point to everyone we're going to meet with our comeuppance and that even if you have you know this fabulous bunker in the snow to what end you know like it's all going to fall apart on you zal anything to add on that well just that um that you know it's we had an instinct you know for this this sort of landscape and 
the pristineness of Iceland we had never been. And then when we went and scouted, of course, we come up against, you know, we come to a boutique hotel in the middle of this sort of, you know, valley, this snowy valley. And lo and behold, boutique hotel is built by an American billionaire and his wife. When we go inside the hotel, the husband and wife who run it, kind of the Todd and Eva who run it, tell us that, you know, there are all these high net worth individuals that come to this hotel for the hell of skiing and all these, you know, remote adventurous rich people things to do. But that when the storms come and they all have to bunker and he showed us like the bunk beds, the staff, you know, who can't drive down the street to their house have to, you know, when they all have to lock down in the hotel, he said the billionaires and millionaires didn't know what to do because they couldn't understand that a storm made the helicopters impassable and driving. So what we had written turned out to be very true. And that was a heartening, heartening and sort of unexpected thing. So I mentioned AI there a moment ago. I suppose we should address Ray The final episode of A Murder at the End of the World reveals, after so many hours of mystery and intrigue around these murders, that Ray is the architect of all the violence, all the bloodshed. But crucially, that reveal isn't one in which you're saying to the audience, surprise, the AI was evil all along. Ray's not evil. He's the product of human flaws. His behaviour is a product of Andy's pettiness and shoddy programming, which kind of renders him very literal minded as the show kind of is reminding you from the very beginning, from the very first episode. Tell me everything, guys. Like, it sounds like the idea of Ray being the killer was was in there from the very beginning. Was that distinction I spoke of always in place, you know, uh, of, of making sure that it's communicated that this isn't like an evil robot situation. And uh, and if so, yeah, why was that important rather than kind of approaching Ray like Hal from 2001, for example? I'm so curious what Zal would say because we haven't talked about this at all with anyone. So I'm like, I'm very intrigued. Oh, no way. <laughs> yeah, we haven't talked about the ending. Um, I think I would say, Britt, that um, it's the banality of evil. You, you, you know, it's not, it's not, he isn't, uh, his sentience is our blind spots, really. And, you know, when we decided to make Andy an architect of AI, uh, some friends of ours and, and you know, other people we talked to were like, oh, AI, that's always in movies. That's not going to really happen for a long time. Like, you know, try to do something else in tech that's more realistic. And every time we wanted to... It, you know, we we like to take the advice of friends and stuff. We just couldn't do it. We just understood that AI is AI is not really sentience. It is just these sort of large language models and these all this data starting to you know have shapes and and starting to have outcomes. And so we thought that like at some point when AI gets invented or and becomes sort of mass market there will be these unintended consequences. There will be death by GPS, which is something we talk about at the beginning of chapter three. I just don't think we ever, like it never even crossed our mind that we would years later have the show being released and we would have a conversation with you and that AI would be alive and well in the world and that we are months, if not a year away from something like this actually happening. So... That's my answer, Brent. I, I want to know what you say. <laughs> well, I think it, it, yeah, I think what's hard about 
how Hollywood has maybe traditionally portrayed AI and how we ourselves have often thought about it is that we want to give it these human qualities. You know, we want to say things like, well, the AI read all this, but no, the AI didn't read anything. The the AI just ingested, you know, like, and that is a scarier version, I think, because the AI isn't sentient. The AI is all saying is just this collection of massive data and an algorithm crunching through it. And so I think, you know, there's a, an expression I read, um, the the writer Ted Chiang, who wrote the wonderful short story um, that is the basis for Arrival. He said somewhere, and I thought this really encapsulated the feelings that we were after when we wrote this, which is that thinking of AI as a force multiplier for capitalism, that it's everything we've already been inside of that isn't working, that has brought about the climate crisis, that has brought about the unravel of democracy, that is you know, monetizing all of our data, but it's just moving faster and faster and becoming more impenetrable You know, in the sense that many AI designers will now say that they build an AI or they mate AI and they leave it running for a long weekend and they come back on Monday and they cannot even understand the code that the thing they designed is now spitting out. And so, look, I mean, I think if we were taking our time with the designing of AI, if it was really inclusive of a wider group, like the group that's invited on the retreat, you know, if Peg, if, if Zeba's character and, um, you know, uh, if uh, the climatologist, if Bill, if there was a big mix of people designing these algorithms, I think I would sleep a little better at night about it all. If Octavia <laughs> Butler was building chat GPT-3 out of her imagination, I'd be very excited to see what that is. But I think what's what we're sort of seeing so far is that everybody's in a rush to beat each other to the marketplace. It's all fueled by capitalistic profit and gain. And so there isn't the time spent developing it. it and, and I think that's what the show is sort of ultimately pointing at is like, who's building these technologies? What is their psychology? What do they want? You know, and then what's the history of the data set? Because all of that is going to enter us and begin animating us for in ways we can't even understand for a long time. And and that's something that certainly is, I, I find very unnerving. And in ways that has already happened, like I think that Darby had to be the age of someone who grew up in the most important, vulnerable years of their life with a smartphone. And the smartphone has already shaped a whole generation of folks in ways that I don't think anyone ever imagined or intended. And there have been huge and there will continue to be huge consequences from that single sort of change in how we sort of interact with each other. Didn't you have your your thesis around AI kind of confirmed during the making of the show? I, I think I heard some sort of story about like uh, you, to to get Ray's dialogue, you played around with an early version of ChatGPT, and uh, yeah, like it, it kind of spat out this dialogue that was completely nonsensical. It thought Lisa Simpson was a real person or something. Yeah, we had a friend of ours helped us get access early to to the the beta round of chat GPT-3 and we, you know, put in the prompt or like, this is the world and this is Darby. And like, if, if an AI invited her to the conference, like what might they say? And of course the AI makes the mistake of thinking Lisa Simpson is a real person, which is funny. And some of it is funny. And then some of it's also 
you know, deadly serious. Um, there are a lot of, there's a, there's a writer and thinker right now, Joy Bulamwini, who writes a lot about, you know, wrote a thesis, I think paper about um, AI not being able to recognize faces of color because it's largely being designed by white people for use with white faces, you know? And so that these gaps that are opening up based on who's designing the technology and what they want, you know, in the early stages of it, it can seem sort of like, oh, sweet, that ChatGPT3 gets this right or this wrong. But the, the consequences start to become so much more serious. I and mean, if you think about even just storytelling and the fate of storytelling, you know, of course, if you think about Hollywood in its purest, most capitalist form, well, the, the best thing to do would be to have no writers, no actors, no directors, no personalities you've got to contend with, but to just have machines create all the narratives. And very soon they'll be able to do that. But they'll be building those narratives based on a history or a data set that includes all of the racism, the misogyny, the homophobia the the xenophobia all the things that we've been talking about in this conversation like <laughs> yeah. that is the history of storytelling that the history of storytelling is largely written from one point of view and for that now to become the future of storytelling but just derivative and mashed up and mixed together and you know put out there again because that's what the data set is that's what the ai has ingested and is drawing from as it creates the quote unquote future oh, brother, that's not a future I want to be in. That's not a future I can survive in, I, I think. So, um, yeah, I think it's, uh, I think it was very scary to see. I think when Zal and I were writing this and so many people were telling us not to do AI and everyone was saying, oh, it's such a long way off. And this is not just, you know, Luddites. This is like people in the field, even a couple of years ago, were being like, it's a, it's a ways off. And the speed at which now it is arrived and that we're going to vault into a future we can't even imagine without many of us have had, you know, most of us having no say in that future, you know, no democratic say in that future. I think that that's, I think that that's something that we have to all be thinking about and kind of like pulling the brakes on the train and being like, oh, okay, you know what do we, the people actually want, you know, like before, before, as all said, it ends up shaping us because the smartphone already has like really eroded my concentration and my imagination. And I can see the difference in it now versus like 10 years ago. Um, and I don't know how to get off my smartphone. And I think a lot of people feel that tug of war. You know? That reveal that, that Ray was behind this all, it leads um, Andy to a really interesting place in terms of where his arc closes out. It feels really resonant to the real world. I think there's this silent assumption that the kind of billionaire tech industry moguls, like the, these kind of maverick supposed geniuses like Andy, that they're going to kind of magic up tech solutions to the crises that are facing us like climate change. But these men, and they're always men, at the end of the day, they are just men and they're flawed like anyone else. And they're probably not coming to our rescue. Was that something you kind of were conscious of in, in working out where where that character was going to end up by the end of this story? I mean, I think they are geniuses, though. I, I think sometimes there's this this desire to defang people, uh, you know, and I think that it's important not to defang them. Like the tech billionaire is a character we see on screen a lot. And we were really inspired to kind of 
modeling more after uh, Noah Cross in Chinatown, where that guy is formidable. Like you feel it. And, you know, John Houston plays him like you feel it. And, and we're so lucky. It's really a gift from God that Clive Owen played this guy because he is formidable, Clive, and he is brilliant. And it's so much sadder that someone brilliant and formidable, like, can't see their blind spots like we all can't. And that's the tragedy, you know, is that we, we the audience, citizens of the world, are giving these people the power. And... As Britt said, you know, like we're not in return for giving the power. We're not really having a stake in the outcome. And and that that to me is sadder than than anything else. And as well as the show ending in a really interesting way for Andy, it also finds a way of perfectly closing out Darby's arc. Like, I love the way that she finally experiences the closure that she needs. Uh, she gets the the growth that she desires and we end the show with this kind of book reading that's a callback to the opening scene in which she's also giving this this kind of reading in a bookstore. Nothing is left unresolved for the character by the end of this tale. However, <laughs> I do need to ask, is there any chance we might see Darby again? Because, you know, she's a fantastic detective. It, it, it doesn't seem when we leave her like she's done with that urge to stop violent crime, to use her digital detective work to to kind of stem that epidemic. The whodunit genre, it's also worth mentioning, loves creating these kind of characters, these detectives who they can drop into new scenarios and give new mysteries to solve. Is there any chance that we'll run into Darby on screen again? It's so interesting at the the longer I spend in the world of storytelling, the more I realize that we are not fully in control in a really beautiful way. Like sometimes you think authorship gives you all this control to you know decide what the narrative is going to be, but the world's changing so quickly now. And I, I feel like as a storyteller, you really have to put your feelers out into the world and sense like, okay, what story does the world need now or next? And not come from a place of, what do I want to tell? But more like, because times are so dire and fraught, what must we tell? You know, like what, what is needed? Um, and who knows, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe Darby Hart will be needed again. Maybe there will be the right conditions and circumstances to, as you said, birth her elsewhere in the world on, on another, on another great mystery. Um, and maybe not, you know, the, the future is uncertain. <laughs> I mean, if there was a, a sequel series in which Darby Hart opens a cafe that serves only coffee and Coke, and the cafe was called, wait for it, Heart Palpitations, <laughs> I'd watch that. I would go to that cafe. You know, maybe that should just be an IRL cafe and, and we can open maybe it, it somewhere in London where, you know, people <laughs> are cold and they need a hot beverage and, you know, something with a little heart palpitation. Yeah, sounds great. Um, well, guys, we should wrap up, but this has been such a fantastic conversation about such a fantastic show. Um, I know our listeners have been asking for an interview with you guys since, well, since the very beginning of Script Apart. So um, it's been a long time coming and it's been so worth the wait. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. This has been such a wonderful conversation. Yeah, it's always so amazing when you learn more about like what you've been working on from someone who's just like taken it in so thoughtfully and has asked such good questions. So thank you for having us on. It was a real honor.
The pleasure has been all mine, guys. We'll, we'll do this over coffee and Cokes next time. I hope I would really love that. In person would be so <laughs> nice. Get out from behind these screens a little bit, you know? At heart palpitations. At heart palpitations, yeah. You've been listening to Scripts Apart. Thank you so much for tuning in. A reminder that if you want to help the show continue to grow, you can join us on Patreon by visiting patreon.com forward slash script apart or clicking the link in today's show notes. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time. <laughs>